Uh, we're in week five of our series through First Timothy called The Good Confession. And what we're doing is we're kind of working our way through this letter of Paul to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus. We're going through it section by section. So if you have your Bible, uh, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. This morning we're going to be covering verses 1 uh, through 7. One of the things that Janine and I have been working on really over the, the, the entire length of our marriage is not using absolute statements in our communication. You know what an absolute statement is? Something like always or, or never. Uh, for example, Janine may say to me, John, you always leave your clothes on the closet floor. Or John, why is it that your dishes never make it to the dishwasher? Now these are wildly hypotheticals. I, it, took me, uh, it took me 40 hours this week to come up with those. I, I may say to Janine, Janine, you, you always leave the light on in the kitchen when you, when you leave the house, you always do that. Or, or I may say you never write things down on a list. And, and you can see how these aren't really helpful in our communication because they put the here on the defensive. They leave a lot to, to, to the imagination and really to be interpreted, don't they? Now the reality is I've gotten pretty good at not using absolutes. In fact, I never use them, even though Janine always does. Uh, but, you know, sometimes in the scriptures we see these words like always and never, and they really, again, they, they're, they're cause for interpretation. For example, we read in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we should always rejoice. What do we do with that? How do we make sense of that? And how do we reconcile that with the words of the psalmist who at times seems to be despairing his own life? Certainly doesn't seem to be uh, rejoicing. In that same chapter, we're told to pray without ceasing. Ceasing, we're never supposed to stop praying. What do we do with that? I mean, it's, it's impossible it would seem to constantly be praying. And so these absolutes, again, they beg questions. And the same can be true about the word all. The word all. And we're going to see that word five times in the passage we're in this morning. And it, again, will spark some questions. So 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, let me begin by reading verses 1 and 2. First of all then, Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, it's interesting to me that, that Paul says, first of all, when he's already written almost a quarter of this letter, but what he's doing is he's, he's saying, I'm getting to the heart of the matter now. I'm getting to the, the body, so to speak, of this letter. He's answering the question, how do we as a church stay on mission? How do we put away distractions? How do we war, wage war against false doctrine? How do we ensure the purity of, of sound teaching? And how do we make sure that the gospel is getting out to those around us? And the answer is first and foremost, by prayer. Prayer is the way that the gospel is extended. And now there are four types of prayer that Paul mentions here. They're, they're all slightly different. He uses a different Greek word. The, the New Testament was written primarily in Greek. And, um, and I'm going to look at those. The first word is, is supplications, which is a, a request for very specific needs. So as he says, I urge that supplications be made. Then, then this word prayers, it's a Greek word, uh, prosukos, which is a, a more of a general term referring to just to communing with God. The third one is thanksgiving, this word uh, eucharistati, uh, eucharistus, it comes from that word eucharistus, which means just giving thanks, showing gratitude, expressions of gratefulness. 
uh, and they're also intercessions, which is uh, really bold entreaties for someone else. And so Paul says, um, he says, I urge that, that people, we, we make all these variety of prayers for all kinds of people. I don't want to get bogged down necessarily in, in the Greek language here, but I, I, I think this is the point that Paul is making, and it's our first point this morning. The gospel is advanced through all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. The gospel is advanced as people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They come to a place where they realize their own brokenness, their own sinfulness. They, they put their faith in Jesus Christ through the prayers of God's people. And, and it's all kinds of prayers that we employ. Sometimes it's pleading with God. When's the last time you, you were on your knees pleading with God? God, let your will be done, but please hear me. Please hear what I'm asking for. I'm begging you, God, please attend to me, listen to me, hear my prayers. Sometimes it's pleading with God. Sometimes it's, it's this urging God on behalf of others. Sometimes it's praising him for his works, praising him for his faithfulness and his goodness to us. Sometimes it's, it's collectively as a church entreating God to save, to do a revival in our own church, in our community, in our area. Now, this is something, if I'm being very candid with you, I have to remind myself of all the time, and that is that the gospel is advanced. People come to saving faith through prayer because, you know, I want to I put together the right argument, and I want to say the right things, and I want to make sure that the gospel presentation is clear, and those are all good things. There's nothing wrong with that. Of course, we should do that. But I have to remind myself when it seems like I'm not really making any progress. You know, you have anyone in your life that you have conversations with, and you, you just don't really feel like you're making any progress at all. I have to remind myself that it's through prayer. It's through a variety of prayers, it's through this desperate urging of God that God brings people to saving faith. Now you say, how do you know this particular prayer that, that we're talking about is actually an evangelistic prayer? Well, it's made clear by the rest of the passage, which is all about God's plan for salvation, God's plan for his redemption of the world. Paul minces no words in saying the prayers of the church should be universal in perspective. They should be broader than simply just praying for ourselves or our own family. And they should be centered on uh, praying for the lost among us. I was at a children's party a few falls ago on a very, uh, one of those very rare weeks in Southern California where it had been raining. It, it, we would go sometimes six months, seven months, and it wouldn't rain. And this was a week that had been raining. And this was the end, this was the weekend of that week and I was at this birthday party for, I don't know, a five or six-year-old uh, little boy, and my family was there. And um, It was one of those parties that has all the stuff, the bouncy houses and uh, the face painting stations and, and games for all ages. And It was an extravagant ordeal, again, on this summer afternoon that had followed a week of a lot of rain. And I was engaged in small talk with the mom who had planned the party, and we're just talking about life and talking about family and church and so on. And then she said to me, I'm so glad that the weather is nice. She said, I've been praying all week for perfect temperatures. And then she got this look on her face like she said something just horribly wrong. Like she'd been, just been taken to the principal's office. So she quickly said, very sheepishly, she said, oh, I'm sorry, is it, is it okay to pray for that? And I think it's I mean, it's a fair question, isn't it? It's a common question. Are there, are there requests that are too small to bring to the Lord? Have you ever been thought about asking God for something and you thought to yourself, maybe beforehand, I don't know, I mean, is that, can I really ask God for that? Is it okay to, to, to ask God for this? It seems kind of small. Does God really care about these matters? 
And the answer is, we know that we can ask God for anything. In fact, he tells us to cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. Now, we know that we can ask things wrongly. Um, Jesus' brother James says that we can ask with evil or sinful motives, but it doesn't mean that, that some things are just too insignificant to bring to the Lord. We, we bring all of our requests, all of our concerns, all of our burdens. God wants us to bring all of it to him. There's nothing wrong with praying for our aunt's hyperextended knee or, or, or friend's sickness. We, we should be praying for those things. There's nothing wrong for praying for even the smallest concerns in our lives. It's okay to bring all those things, and we should, but the primary focus of our prayer lives should be spiritual. Namely, the salvation of those who are lost and the sanctification of those who are in Christ. Here, here's a question to ask concerning your own prayer life. What would change in the world if your prayers were answered? Would anything change in the world if, if God answered all of your prayers? How would the world be different if God answered your prayers? Will we see revival? God answered your prayers. Would, would persecuted believers in, in places like Stan countries, some of the northern countries in Africa, would persecuted believers be emboldened in their witness if God answered all your prayers? Would anything in the world change? Even Paul's instruction to pray for kings and those who are in high positions is spiritual in nature. We pray for our nation's rulers so that God might give them the sort of wisdom and insight and courage to govern in such a way that it leads to a peaceful society. Because in a peaceful society, messengers of Christ, messengers of the gospel can go out unhindered. Christians can live in harmony with their neighbors, which brings honor to the name of Christ. Of course, God saves people in cultures of hostility, and, and we know that, uh, as some of the early church fathers said, it's the, it's the blood of the martyrs that is the seed, right, of the gospel fruit. And so we know that God works in, in hostile environments, and we also know that even now, in 2018, there are more governments hostile toward the gospel, hostile toward the name of Jesus Christ than at any other time in history. And yet God is still making disciples in those places. So yes, God makes disciples among those cultures of hostility. But when there's peace, Christians can live out freely the call of God in their lives and, and, and then attract that, be that attracting fragrance of Christ to the lost. And so we pray for those, those rulers. And we're going to see next week, we're going to talk about some specific ways we can pray for our president, for those in key leadership roles in our country, in our state. Paul says, pray for everyone. He knows that without prayer from God's people, the gospel will not flourish fully. Without prayer from God's people, the gospel will not flourish fully. Uh, back in the early 1960s, there, was these two, there were these two young women, and they were students of Biola University. Biola is a Christian school in Southern California. It used to be, I think Biola stands for... Uh, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, and now they just call it Biola, but it's a, it's a growing school in Los Angeles. But way back in the 60s, when it was just a sort of a, a, a flur, a, a, just a budding school, there were these two young women who determined that God had called them to the remote uh, village, Philippine village of Balangao, to translate the Bible to the people uh, in their language. 
And here, here's where it is on the map. You can see kind of you get a sense of where it is just in, in terms of the Philippine Islands. And here's a contemporary look at it today. You see it's lush and green. You see houses. You see people living there. But it wasn't that way in the 1960s. It was all jungle. It was totally unreached people. And these two single ladies, I think about this, what, what would I feel if my own daughters came to me and said, we want to go to this unreached village in the jungle. These two single ladies had determined that God was calling them, uh, Joanne Stetler and Ann Fetzer. These two ladies that God had called, again, these 20-somethings that believed that God was calling them to this incredible destination, this challenging destination to reach unreached people. Now, just getting to the place they were going to go required hiking through dense jungles, it required uh, encountering all kinds of tropical animals and, and insects and so on. And so it was a challenge just to get to where they were. But once they arrived at their destination, things would get only uh, more complicated. And this was a place that had never heard the name of Jesus. So the spiritual battles were intense. There was a, a foreboding. There was, a, there was an ominous sense that, that there are spiritual forces at work here. The very uh, dangerous place. Well, they finally got to their destination. They began their translation project when one of the ladies, um, Anne, decided to return home and marry her college sweetheart. So she'd gone. She believed God was calling her, but she decided early into this that she would go home. So that left Joanne there by herself. She had a very difficult decision to make. Do I, do I stay in this environment where who knows what could happen to me as a single lady? I'm talking about not just tropical diseases, but all kinds of things could happen. Well, she decided to stay, and again, she braved uh, just unimaginable elements from, from delivering babies with no, no formal training at all to enduring this mysterious illness herself that no one could figure out. In her book, And the Word Came with Power, Joanne says that in among, among all these things, her greatest frustration among all of this was the fact that five straight years in the jungle, she saw no fruit. No fruit. Nobody came to faith. There may have been a few questions, but nobody was on their knees before. Nobody was confessing Christ, the risen Lord, as their Savior. There was nothing. Five years of toiling. She said she went back to the States for a sabbatical, and she was so discouraged. And then she discovered something that, that radically changed her life and ministry. She realized that she hadn't really pleaded with the people in, of her church to pray for the salvation of these tribal folks. She'd asked them to pray for her, her safety, her travels, but she said she hadn't really learned, asked them to pray for, the, for, the, for a revival in, in that area. She said she learned that spiritual work is not accomplished by might, ability, or technique, but by prayer. So she goes back on sabbatical, and she goes around telling her churches, just pray for these people. Hear the names of these people. Pray for these families. And in her testimony, Stetler writes this, my church no longer prayed, dear God, Please bless Joe wherever she's at and whatever she's doing. They took up the burden. And when I got back from furlough, things started to happen. First, a couple people came to faith. They professed Christ as Lord. Then they said, hey, is it okay if we, if we share Jesus with, with some of our extended family? And so they started sharing their, their faith with other people. And then all of a sudden, entire families started coming to faith. And then an entire village is transformed by the power of the gospel. People putting off these, this animism and worship, worshiping of animals and all this dark spiritual presence. They started clinging to Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. And all of a sudden, this miraculous work did in this village. She said she realized that spiritual bondage, transformation, none of these things take place apart from the prayer of God's people. 
Through all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people, God moves in a powerful way. And this is what God calls us to be about as well. Now look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, I want to pause there. This is, uh, again, I, I mentioned at the beginning, this is going to pose for us a couple of challenges and really a, a difficult theological challenge. Paul said that God desires all people to be saved. And that's what, what I just read. God desires all people to be saved. But we know that all people aren't saved. We know that. In fact, Jesus said that broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And few find it. Few find it. So again, that pre creates a little bit of a challenge here. What do we do with this? What does Paul mean? Do we have in heaven this frustrated God who wants something to happen but can't make it happen? Do we have in heaven a God who wants all people to be saved but he, he, he doesn't have the ability to actually bring this to fruition? Is God showing signs of inconsistency or conflicting desires? Well, we know that's not the case. Some people have tried to make sense of this verse uh, by pointing out that that God has his desires, and he also has what he sovereignly wills. And so his desires are kind of trumped by his sovereign decrees. There's what he really wants to happen versus what he has ultimately decreed to happen. And I, and I have to say, that could be right. It could be right. But it doesn't really help me very much, and I'm not sure that it really is consistent with the overall context here. Now, there are other people who say, that this phrase, God desires all people to be saved, is just a literary expression. It's a poetic way of saying, of giving us a glimpse into the heart of God. Saying, this God, he wants everyone to be saved. And I think that could be a fair interpretation. I mean, it could be right on. But I think there's a better answer exegetically as we really try to understand this passage. And the key to interpreting this passage lies in an accurate understanding of the word all. Now, here's what I mean. In the scriptures, the word all is used in, in several different ways, but primarily in two different ways. The first is all without exception. In this case, all means sing, every single person. Every person without exception. So everyone. So when we tell people, that, that all are invited to come to a certain event. Uh, we, we mean every single person, every person without exception. But there's a second way that all is used in the scriptures. And in that case, it means this. It means all without distinction. In other words, every single kind of person, Jew, Gentile, black, white, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, influential, powerless. God wants every kind of person from every background Every tribe, every tongue, a person uh, of every ethnicity and race and education, God wants every kind of person to come to knowledge of the truth. Now you say, well, I don't know, I mean, doesn't all mean all? I mean, I hear that, doesn't all mean all? Well, it doesn't always mean without exception. For example, when Jesus, remember when Jesus, he gathers his disciples together and, and he's getting ready to send them out. And there's this very intimate moment in Matthew chapter 10. 
and he's preparing his disciples. He wants them to know, this is not going to be an easy road here. This is not going to be a, a, a sort of a cakewalk. I want you to know what you're going to go through. And then he says in, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, he says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Well, surely Jesus doesn't mean to inform his disciples that every single person, without exception, that they encounter will hate them. In fact, we know that was not the case because some of the people they encountered actually opened up their homes to them. Said, hey, stay with us while you continue, continue this mission. They would not be hated by every single person, but certainly they would be hated by every kind of person. Jew and Gentile alike, those who held positions of prominence, those who were the lowly, the peasants, again, the rich. Jesus is saying, wherever you go, people of all kinds will find a reason to oppose you and in fact hate you. Here's another example. In Luke 21, we're told that while Jesus was teaching in Jerusalem and early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Well, we know that not every single person in Jerusalem came to the temple to hear Jesus. Not every single person came to listen to Jesus and to respond to him in the temple. But every kind imaginable was there. The poor people, again, the peasants, the merchants, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were all there to listen. Some were captivated by, others resisted, rejected the teaching of Jesus. Now, this understanding of all makes perfect sense when we look at verse 1 and 2 again. Paul says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And then, just as an example of all kinds of, he says, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful life, godly and dignified in every way. What is Paul saying there? Paul, Paul doesn't command Timothy in the church at Ephesus to pray for every single person in the world. How does a person stay awake for that long? It just wouldn't work, right? Because they don't know everybody in the world. Here's what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's saying pray for every kind of person from the poor and the homeless to the prostitutes, the destitute, those of little influence, to the kings and the leaders and the influential, those who wield authority around you. And here's why. This is our second point this morning. No nation, race, or neighborhood is excluded from God's salvation since God longs to see all people without distinction come to saving faith. No, no nation... No race, no people group, not even a neighborhood. No neighborhood is to be excluded. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the neighborhood you're from. The offer of complete forgiveness is for you. Now, if you were born in a privileged family and you grew up uh, in a privileged neighborhood and you had the best education that the world could offer and you have a habit, maybe you would never, you don't want to admit it, but of looking down at other people, you've led a comparatively clean life Maybe that doesn't strike you as revolutionary. But if you were a Gentile in the first century church and you were being told that, that Gentiles, non-Jews, were not heirs to the promises in Christ, that salvation was only for the Jews, then the news that salvation is for all people without distinction is actually really good news. If you were a Jew in the synagogue trying to do the very best you could to keep the law, and you were taught that only the righteous, only the absolute law keepers could be saved, and you knew that you'd fail to keep the law, then this, you hear this, this is really good news. If you were a hardworking person in the city of Ephesus, 
doing everything you could to provide for your family. And you're, you're, you're up early in the morning and you're staying up late at night and you're doing everything you can. You're working yourself to the bone. But the Gnostics in the community, those who had said they had special knowledge, were saying to you, unless you can gain special knowledge, you'll never be heirs to the promises of God. When you hear this, this is good news. Now let me bring it up to our current context. If you're a pretty good person and you stayed out of jail and you stayed off drugs and you're at church pretty regularly and you're, you know, comparatively speaking, you're pretty good. You don't really feel like you need salvation. This is not really that big of a deal, is it? To you at least. But if you can't seem to get past the same pattern of sin, if you have repented and you have confessed your sin, but you can't seem to get past it, you can't seem to get past this pornography. You can't seem to get past your tendency to gossip. You can't seem to get past this fact that you're angry at the, at the very deepest part of your soul. You can't release it. If you know that you have failed God again and again, and you recognize that God is holy, there's nothing you can do to earn his salvation. And you hear this? That it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who your parents are. This salvation, this forgiveness is open to everyone. If that's you, this is really good news. This is really good news. There is no race, nation, neighborhood that is excluded from God's salvation, not even the morally bankrupt. His forgiveness is available to all people, even blasphemers, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. And to those who don't think they need help, Paul will go on to say, just as God's grace is infinitely better than you ever dreamed, your condition is actually far worse than you ever thought possible. You can't even approach God without a mediator. Look again at verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Paul says there's one God, only one. And there's only one way to get to that God. There's only one way. And it is through Jesus Christ. See, we can't get to God on our own. Whether or not we want to admit it, we're broken people. We're sin-cursed people. And my boys and I and Janine and I were watching a show last night on Netflix called My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. And it's a series that uh, a very hirsute uh, David Letterman, he's got this gigantic beard he, he has uh, in 2018 where he interviews people of random backgrounds, various backgrounds and, and so on. And so we watched a, about an episode and a half last night and uh, one comedian had said that comedians are broken people. And in fact, maybe you've heard the old adage that, that says pain plus time equals comedy. And that this is the way that it is a lot of times, right? In fact, we had, I had two in, living in Los Angeles or in the Hollywood area. I had, we had a, a stand-up comedian who was part of our church who traveled to Las Vegas and performed. And then there was another guy that I was good friends with. His name was Nazareth, this uh, Middle Eastern uh, comedian who traveled all over the world, been on all the shows. And they would both say, yeah, the, the pain plus time equals comedy. But there was, a, there was one comedian who'd said, no, that's not, this is the case, right? Pain plus time, comedians are hurting people. But then another guy that we looked at yesterday said, look, I disagree with that. This is, a, this is not a Christian, by the way. He said, he said, we're all broken people. 
comedians, bread truck drivers, however you want to say it, teachers, attorneys, engineers, preachers, we're all broken people. We're all broken people. In fact, we're at odds with God from birth. We're at odds with God from birth. Here we stand on one side, rebellious, sinful people who have rejected God's law and really want to be under our own authority. We cling above to all else to this notion. This great uh, Scottish preacher once said that every single person has this, clings to this one notion. I am my own. I'm my own. I, I can do what I want to do. I'm my own authority. I'm my own governor. I'm my own ruler. We cling to this notion that we're under our own authority. We cling above to this, this notion that we can do what we want to do. And here we stand. God's wrath is upon us. We're on one side. We're sinful, sin-cursed people, broken, separated from God. On the other side, we have a holy God who cannot accept sin into his presence. A God whose every motive is pure. A God in whom there is no darkness, only light. No impurity. A God who must punish sin. His character demands it. His holiness requires it. Well, how can the two sides ever come together? How can the two sides ever meet? How can the two sides be reconciled? We need a mediator. We need a mediator. A go-between. A person who comes between the two parties who are in conflict in order to bring about reconciliation. Well, seeing our hopeless condition, what God does, He sends His own Son to be that mediator, to reconcile the two sides who are at odds with each other. Now, a mediator has to be able to appease, to satisfy both parties. And how would mediation take place? It wouldn't be just through words alone. Words alone wouldn't cut it. A sacrifice had to be made. A sacrifice had to be made in order to satisfy the wrath of this perfect and holy God. A moral debt had to be paid if we would be accepted before God. Someone actually had to suffer the punishment that we were due. The substitute had to be fully God in order to bear the sins against an infinite God. And the substitute had to be fully human in order to be a, an appropriate sacrifice for humanity. He has to be sinless so that he himself can't be held under the power of sin and death because the wages of sin is death. But he has to be fully God in order to satisfy the wrath of God. Well, only Jesus, being the perfect God-man, can meet those requirements. Not an angel, not a priest, not Mary, not some ancient saint. None of those possessed a divine and human nature. In fact, the fourth century theologian Anselm, and I don't agree with everything he's written, but I like what he says here. He says this about that payment. The debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both God and man. Thus it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person. The wrath of God must be poured out for sin because God is holy. So it was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross for those who would accept his provision by faith. Or, it's poured out the wrath of God is poured out on all those who reject him in eternal condemnation. But the beautiful part is God's offer of forgiveness and salvation is open to everyone. Through Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all, for every kind of person, a payment that was sufficient for all the world's sin, 
We could be freed from our guilt and our shame and this moral debt that forever, or that stood against us. Now, here's our final point. Jesus alone can harmonize this great contradiction. A Christian is a sinner deserving of God's wrath, yet instead a recipient of God's boundless love. There's nobody else. There's nobody else who's ever lived who could ever make that contradiction, who could ever, who could ever remedy that contradiction. There's no one else who could ever harmonize these two things. We are sinful people. We are apart from God at birth. We continue to rebel against God. How can we be loved by a perfect God? Only by this perfect go-between. Only by the sinless mediator. In Christ, God brings us to himself by faith alone. Now talk about absolutes. What's absolute is our absolution. That is our complete and total forgiveness. That's what's absolute. So, so what that means is if you're in Christ this morning, even though others may judge you this morning, God doesn't. Even though others may condemn you this morning, God doesn't, not if you're in Christ. Even though others may heap upon you expectation after expectation after expectation, things you must do in order to be loved by them. That's not how God works. If you are in Christ, He loves you. If you're in Christ this morning, God loves you. He loves you more than your mom or dad. He loves you more than your siblings. God loves you more than you love yourself because of the, the complete and finished work of Jesus. All the benefits applied to you by faith. If you're in Christ this morning, you are loved by God and He's always for you, never against you. He's working out everything for His own glory and your good. And as Jonathan Edwards said way back in the early 1700s, so beautiful, God's passion, His interest in His own glory and His passion for the good of His people, they're never at odds with each other. They work in some sort of great mystery where God is going to bring glory to His name and He's going to bring good to you. And of course, we don't see the whole picture, so sometimes we wonder, how could this be good for me? We go through something, we say, I don't want to go through that, that's not good. But in some great way, according to his infinite wisdom, God is working out all things for the advancement of your faith, for the completion of your salvation, for the increase of your joy in him, and for his glory. It was this incredible love that moved God to remedy the problem of our sin by going between us, obliterating the barrier that stood against us. This is what he did by the mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ. As Christ bore our sins, carried our burdens, suffered in our place, died the death we deserve, was raised again to new life and great power. Carl F. H. Henry is maybe the greatest Baptist theologian of all time. Maybe, maybe, maybe slightly under John Bunyan, who was also a Baptist theologian, but uh, Carl F. H. Henry summarizes the message this way. He says, Despite man's moral revolt, God shows his love in the offer of redemption. He is supremely revealed in Jesus Christ in once-for-all incarnation. He has coped decisively with the problem of human sin in the death and resurrection and ascension of the incarnate Logos. This is the beautiful thing. 
we no longer have to be separated from God because of the work of the mediator. And this is such good news. This is such incredibly good news that it must get out. Look at verse 7, and we're wrapping up here. Paul says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, I don't know, when I read that, that's kind of an odd thing to say, isn't it? I'm, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. Have you ever met someone that whenever they say something to you, they always say, honestly, I did this, or honestly. So it makes me wonder, if you don't say honestly, are you lying to me? And people who constantly say that, you know anybody like this? Well, Paul says, why would he say, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying? What, what's, why would he be uh, moved to say that? Well, it's because what he's saying is so radical, this notion that, that God would extend his offer of salvation to all people, that God would show his love in such an incredible way that it would, it would mean the death of his son. It's such a radical thing. It's such a counterintuitive thing that Paul has to say, look, I want you to believe me. I'm not lying here. God would extend his mercy to the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, those who know they're really bad and those who are really bad but don't know it. The worst person you can think of. There is no person that is beyond the scope of God's forgiveness. And there is no action that you have ever done, that I have ever done in, in our collective past that is beyond the power of God to forgive. And I have to tell you, honestly, to tell you honestly, I've had people in my office over 18 years, and I've had people say to me repeatedly, but Pastor John, you, you don't know. You don't know what I've done. I had an abortion when I was 16. I left my wife for, for a woman much younger. I've cheated at works in, in such a way that it's brought me all kinds of money. I've embezzled from my employer. One guy came to me and, and was just late at night. The only time we were able to meet was at 9 o'clock at night. He said, I've been stealing money out of the offering plate. So you may be thinking, you don't know what I've done. Whatever it is, it's not beyond the power of God to forgive. It doesn't matter what you've done. God will forgive you. It doesn't matter how egregious it is, how offensive it is. And maybe you're thinking, I haven't, one lady told me, I've never told my husband what I've done. Some of the things I've done. Maybe nobody else knows. God knows. And he's eager to forgive those who repent and come to him in faith. The rich, the poor, the powerful, the powerless. There is no person of any religion, background, race, nationality, family lineage, personal history, beyond the reach of God's gospel. It is offered to all. God's grace is infinitely wider and more sufficient than we ever thought possible, saving even the most heinous of offenders. Saving us. God's plan through Christ alone concerns all people, and therefore the church's mission must also concern all people. Reaching out in prayer and witness. There's only one God. There's only one way to get to that God is through the man Christ Jesus, the one who brings near to God those who are far from him, the one who reconciles the broken to God, the one who brings forgiveness to the sinner, who makes alive the dead, and the one who at this very moment is interceding for his own. 
the one who because of God's grace and mercy will hold us fast, will keep us close to himself, will not let us be lost. Let's pray.